remember in the, in the Old Testament where angel says, take up of your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. I'm not sure if I've said this to you before, but what made the ground holy? Its location? What was going to happen there? Nope. God's presence sanctifies and makes holy. prepare to hear God's word holy ground so I want you to confess your sins to one another now I'll do this with Anthony too whether it's your spouse or random person confess your sins that you may be forgiven this is holy ground if you, if, you, if you want to comprehend what Jesus did on the cross, confess your sins, repent. Make your heart till soil to receive the truth today. Confess your sins. Don't hide over them. Deepest, darkest, ugliest. Tear open your heart if you want to hear the truth today. So while the band carries on so that there's some noise you can go to a corner you can go outside but just three or four minutes just find somebody and confess your sins to one another that you may be forgiven by God and you will benefit the rich harvest from today so let's do this while the band continues to play Holy Spirit, we just thank you that you, when you've given us a new heart, we can be contrite in spirit and we can come before our Father knowing that he is faithful, is faithful to forgive. So Lord, I pray that you will comfort and your spirit will testify to the forgiveness of sins that we may know the righteousness, peace, and joy that's in your spirit. As we look at the cross, we can say, behold the kindness and severity of God. Would you open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 53? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, 
have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I shall divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgression. Hallelujah. This is called the forbidden passage. In rabbinical tradition, it is read in hardly any synagogues across the face of the earth. Because you can't read that and not see that Jesus Christ is the one of whom they are speaking. At the center of Christianity... What's the central concern of God? What's the central concern of Christianity? What's the central concern of the Christian life? It's the glory of God. And that glory is most extremely, wonderfully, magisterially displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. Today is often treated like a a somber day, almost like a a day of mourning in this process because it was the day that uh, Jesus was crucified. Uh, I don't really, I don't buy that we must make this a day of mourning because Jesus is not on the cross and he is not in the grave. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, reigning, and he's coming back. (laughs) Jesus is alive. We celebrate specifically on Sunday, Jesus' resurrection, but we still celebrate that today. We're just going to look at in the light of his death, what really happened. So we can think about a few things. What does the cross mean? What is the gospel? Who is God? Who is Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? How do you become one? How do you stay one? Lots of things we can think about. I want to ask you, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Jesus? Just say some things. Mercy, Savior, love, glory, reality, kindness, his blood, forgiveness, sacrifice, son of God. 
holy, 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 the thrice holy God. The foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice. One of the ways he makes manifest his glory is in his love toward us. He is love and he gets to interpret and describe what it means that he is love. That he loves righteousness, that he hates sin. Culture makes Jesus out to be something other than what he says he is. Quite often, we can do that in the church too, not necessarily by saying the wrong things, but not emphasizing the right things. And uh, if you give you an example, have you heard the, the, the phrase, God loves the sinner but hates the sin? Does God send the sin to hell? God sends the sinner to hell. Where did we get this idea? Psalm 5 verse 5. Let's have a look at that quickly. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Wow. Psalm 11.5, God hates the wicked. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Said even more clearly, Psalm 145, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Psalm 1 verse 5 says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. In Luke 13 Jesus speaks of that final judgment. And he says that many of them will come and he'll say, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. I never knew you. And then goes on in verse 28 to say, They will go forever to a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you want to know what it looks like, Revelation 14 verse 10. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. So where did we get the phrase, hell is not just nasty things happening to you, it's the absence of God. No, 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 no. It's the presence of God in judgment. That makes it terrifying. We can't invent things about heaven, about hell, about who Jesus is. We have to look and see what he said about himself. He's holy. Holy, holy, holy. You all feel the sense of it, the significance, the weight of his holiness in confessing sin. And then he pours out his kindness forgiveness, his mercy, his love, and he keeps every one of those who has forgiven, who he has forgiven, who have repented of their sin and trusted in him. If we look at Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. 
if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his skull his violence descends. Wow. Ugh. God said that. And we can find some interesting things in the, in the Gospels as well. But before we go there, Psalm 51. is David's confession. How's this? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. But you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, David did sin against other people, Uriah, Bathsheba. But so serious is the holiness of God that he can say, against you, God, and against you only have I sinned. Serious. Hmm. If we go and have a look in in the Gospels, We'll see a few more things that Jesus said. Let's have a look at Matthew 7. Hmm. Jesus talking about the judgment day. And he talks about uh, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Verse 17. In verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he goes on, verse 28, it says, And when he finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And if we go to Matthew 8, we see something amazing. It's one of my favorite stories about God's dominion. Have a look at Jesus being in the in the boat, uh, the disciples being in the boat with Jesus in verse twenty three. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And then they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? 
Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? So shouldn't we ask, what sort of man is this who takes away sins? The one who calms the winds and the waves of God's wrath. And then next, another amazing story, another one of my favorites. And then when he came to the other side, so we just had the storm situation, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the, t- the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Okay, so imagine this. They w- these two demon men were so fierce that people would get lynched walking past them, right? There was no way past them. They would overcome anybody who came their way. Into Jesus. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know. They know who he is. They know what's going to happen. These are the, no men can walk past these demons. But when Jesus arrives, they cry out, What have you to do with us? What are you going to do? You're early. It's over for us. He hasn't said anything. He's just arrived. And then they begged him. There was a herd of pigs nearby. And and the demons begged him saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. They asked him for permission to go somewhere else. He's Lord of the harvest. Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of hosts. Lord of angels, Lord of demons, Lord of heaven and earth. He's in control of everything. This is Jesus. Verse 10. You say, surely Jesus wouldn't say something like this. Verse, uh, sorry, verse 28 of Matthew 10. Thank you. Uh, what has just happened is uh, they, they're talking about uh, their concern for... Uh, what will happen to them uh, from from people looking to beat them or or whatever. But Jesus says, And do do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear people. What happens when you die? That's what matters. How you die Relevant. You're going to die. And it's appointed unto all men to die once and then comes the judgment. So he's saying, don't worry about how you die. Worry about who you're going to be before when you die. Don't worry about man. Worry about God who can cast your soul into hell. And we go, oh, I'm a, you know, Jesus. Is that really what he's like? mentioned earlier what the culture says about Jesus and what the church sometimes emphasizes about Jesus. The culture wants to paint some kind of, Vody Balcom says, a sissified Jesus. Mm. It sounds blasphemous, right? And that's because it is. 
But that's what the culture is doing. They want a, a gender-neutral Jesus. They want a Jesus who celebrates rebellion against God's design for marriage, for sexuality. This is how you can tell who's a false teacher. They don't get that God is holy. So they don't tell you that God is holy. They don't tell you about the Jesus in Scripture. They go, oh, people already know they're bad. That's a quote. No, people don't know that they're bad. They don't. They watch the news. We watch the news and we go, wow, those people are bad. No, you're bad. I'm bad. We all need Jesus. Right? Oh, you know, God is just so good. Do you, know what is that? Do you know what that means? That God is good. It means you're going to hell. So you need a savior. And God is good because he has also provided that savior. It's both. God is merciful and he's just. He's holy and therefore he can love and he can administer punishment. They go... You know, Jesus is longing for you. He needs you. God is the Alpha and Omega. He has no beginning and no end. He's self-sustaining. He's self-existential. He's self-sufficient. That, by definition, means he needs nobody. Oh, you're breaking his heart. He's going to break you in half. That's what's going to break. That's what's going to break. That, you see, the reason that Jesus doesn't have any power, the reason that that Jesus only brings con- false converts into the church is because that Jesus does not exist. The Jesus of the Bible is an actual savior. He's not a spiritual guide, some kind of guru, a compass. He's God. He's actual, actually God who has died for your sins and given you righteousness. We can't make up Jesus or we go to hell. Jesus is the center of all things. We are not, right? And I can prove it to you. When you die, I can guarantee you until Christ returns that the world is going to keep spinning on the same axis at the exact same speed it was spinning while you were on the planet. Thank you very much for your contribution. And when you, when you die, all of your stuff is going to get given to somebody else. Yeah, you don't even get to keep it. So who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Who are we that God is mindful of us, yet he set his eyes on us in loving kindness before the foundation of the world, that we should be adopted as children into his household, that we should be washed by his blood, washed clean, united with Christ, baptized into his death, baptized into his life, that we will live forevermore in holiness, peace, joy, free from the presence of sin, in the presence of the angels, worshiping God forever. Isn't that incredible? If you go to Revelation 19, <laughs> they, they say keep out of Revelation when you're preaching. Okay, 
I want to tell you about the Jesus of the Bible. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. Mm. So if Jesus is a peacemaker, why is God making war? God's making war against sin, and Jesus is making peace between you and God. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And by the name by which he is called, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, there's an army. There's an army. Right? Jesus needs you. (laughs) And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of of lords blessed be the name of the lord he's the great god of the universe do you think he'll let sin slide do you think he will let an unrepentant nation live no 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 this god put the sin of believers on his son and crushed him We read there in Isaiah 53 that it was the will of Yahweh to do it. You did not put Jesus on the cross. The Roman soldiers did not put Jesus on the cross. Obviously, we did. But ultimately, God put Jesus on the cross. And it's not just like God the Father saying, Right, son, I'm going to crucify you. And he goes, Okay. And the Holy Spirit goes, Okay, whatever is necessary to make that happen. Salvation is a Trinitarian work. All things are accomplished through the, through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was the will of Yahweh for Jesus to be crucified. And it says, He went willingly laying down His life. And then the Spirit rose Him from the dead. And that same Spirit lives in you and I. Amazing. Salvation is a Trinitarian work. And the question we have to ask is, what exactly happened when Jesus died? Now, there's a number of things that happened, right? Quite a few things happened. And there's been many theories through the years to try and tie these things down. A few of them biblical, many of them heresies. Some of them that are very problematic... One is called the ransom to Satan theory, which is, treats the cross as if 
we were owned by the devil, and we owned we owed the devil a debt, and so Jesus had to die to pay that debt so that we could be purchased back from the devil. Now, that's a lie. We owe a debt to the one whose law we transgressed, God. Okay? The, the, the debt that exists is between us and God, and we can't satisfy it. So we are ransomed from something, but not from the devil. We are ransomed from the judgment of God, which is death. Okay? There's another called the dramatic theory, which sees the atonement of Christ as securing victory in a divine conflict between good and evil. And this is one of the worst blasphemies because it's, it's sort of like um, Mormonism in a way that says that Jesus is uh, the, bro- the brother of Lucifer. Okay? As if the idea is that there's been this actual, you know, you've seen the photos of like the arm wrestle of, de- of, the, of Satan and Jesus or something like that, or that there's some spiritual war going on between good and evil in the heavens. That's pagan mysticism. That thing does not exist. The devil is a beast on a leash. God could have crushed him the second he rebelled, but God had another purpose in mind. Satan has no authority over, over, um, over, over God, no power over him. And uh, Jesus will, has, has, has defeated death and Satan. He has the keys of death and Hades, right? But it was never a, well, it's, it's kind of equal as strength and, and, and Jesus has to beat Satan. No, 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 no. That wasn't the victory. That wasn't the victory. Yeah, that wasn't the victory. The victory that was won is, is uh, Christ triumphing over the power of sin, death, which is God's judgment against us. There's another one called the mystical theory, and it sees Jesus as triumphing symbolically over his own sinful nature so that he can achieve. You would have heard this from people like, um, uh, he's the Indian doctor guy, um, uh, he called, uh, Deepak Chopra, the Christ consciousness. That's what he talks about all the time. We need to access the Christ consciousness. It's a lie. It's a lie. We don't need to access a new conscience. And Jesus didn't need to access a new conscience. He was the perfect, blameless, spotless son of God. We need a new heart. And that's what he secured for us on the cross. Another one is the moral influence theory, which is that uh, because, because of Jesus dying on the cross for us in some sense, what that does is show us God's love so that we will be influenced to change our lives and our behavior. It's also a heresy. Jesus died on the cross to demonstrate God's love by absorbing God's wrath against our sin. That's a totally different thing. Then the last one is the example theory. That Jesus died on the cross to provide an example of obedience so that we would start obeying God's law. Come on, guys. That's what, try, that's what they tried to do as soon as they sinned in the garden. Try to start obeying. Get righteousness back. But there's not one righteous. No, not one. Nobody kept the law perfectly except Jesus Christ. None of those things are true. There's two, there's several, but here's two main biblical ways to look at this. The first is called Christus Victor. That Jesus was victorious over sin and death. As I mentioned, the, the, the keys of death and Hades. That in raising, being raised from the dead, that he is able to give us life. That's the victory. Right? He has won the bride. And then right at the heart, when we ask, what happened on the cross? Penal substitutionary atonement. 
That means a penalty was levied on somebody else than the person who committed the crime. And atonement means that satisfaction happened, that justice was done. So God punished his son. It says that he was, he was cursed, beaten, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. That was the penalty. Substitutionary because he died in our place. And it made atonement because it satisfied God's wrath against our sin. Because he had kept the law and our sin had been counted to him and God had dealt with it on the cross. So what has happened on the cross is that Jesus has taken on our sin. And because of his resurrection and because of faith in God, his righteousness is counted to us. That's why it's called the great exchange. And the hard reality is this. If Jesus was not forsaken on the cross by God, we would still be in our sins. A terrifying thought. Hmm. You know, Jesus bared the, the sanctions for violation of the covenant. You know, all covenants were created with uh, sanctions for transgression. Jesus bore the, trans- the consequences of us violating the covenant. That's love. And uh, another way to look at what happened on the cross is, you know, the sign of the old covenant was circumcision. This cutting off had two significances, a positive one and a negative one. The positive was that it was a sign that you were into the covenant of God. But the negative was in a sense that you were saying, Oh God, cut me off if I don't keep your commandments. And that's bad news because not one of them kept all of God's commandments. The cross was the, the true, supreme, and final circumcision. The true cutting off. Jesus took the curse on himself and he so identified with our sin that he became cut off from God. And justly so. And justly so. Because our sin actually was counted to him. It's it's not a theory. It's what actually happened. It said, he made him who knew, who knew no sin to be sin. He himself had no sin, but he was made to be sin because all our sin was imputed to him. God counted it. He put it there on him. He heaped every transgression of all the believing on him. So much so that in John 3.16 it can say that, For God so loved the world that whosoever, all the believing is the, is the Greek, all the believing, Shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's how amazing this work was. God averted his face. He turned away. He cut his son off so that you and I will never be cut off. We will always be members and saints in the household of God. Because Jesus was cut off from the Father in our place. Which is why Jesus could finally say in John 19.30, It is finished. And he could say, Father, into your hands 
I commit my spirit. Okay, so if you want to get a good picture of how exactly this happened, I think we can look at the, the Exodus. It's two, two things we're going to look at, the Exodus and something that happened in Numbers 21. So Pharaoh decided to uh, resist the Creator, did not want to let the people go, and a darkness came upon the, the face of the land. And uh, so Egypt's sin had caused God to unleash the consequences, the chaos for their wickedness. It was all these, uh, all these plagues. You know, each and every one corresponded to a, a major Egyptian deity. So God was demonstrating his power over their false gods in each one of those plagues. Interesting side note. Anyway, so now... Uh, so. Uh, we have to say what happened um, when, when Moses came and, and, the, and the waters parted. And we say, well, why exactly did the floods stay to the side, the, the waters stay to the side when the, uh, the Israelites went through but closed in on the Egyptians? It's interesting because the Israelites, <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't good people. We would say, well, the reason that, it, uh, that the, it, the Egyptians were uh, killed, that the water collapsed in on them, is because they were the wicked ones and the Israelites were good. No, they weren't. They were rebellious. They were hard, stiff-necked, obstinate people who were very quick to forget everything that God did for them. But God had set his favor upon them. Surely you and I see this as the testimony of our lives. Stiff-necked, obstinate but God had set his sovereign grace upon us. Anyway, so, so why? It's not enough just that God's favor, but specifically, how was that applied? Well, verse 14 says that everyone cried out. They didn't say, uh, di- uh, they said, didn't we say to you, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? They said that to God. They they said, well, we'd rather serve our oppressors than serve you. (laughs) So right now, God's probably thinking, right, those waters are (laughs) about to fall on you. And and, and then the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? God shows up and he rebukes Moses. Moses wasn't the one grumbling and complaining. Complaining. But later on in verse 21, we are told that uh, Moses stretched out his hand over the seas. But before the verse is over, it says that all that night the Lord drove the sea back. So here's what you've got. You've got a man who's so identified with the Israelites that God treats him as if the Israelites' sin is his sin. And you've got a man so identified with God that God's mercy... And grace is able to flow through him towards the Israelites. What you have is a mediator, a man in the gap. But I know of a greater mediator, a greater man in the gap, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was fully man and fully God. 
so identified with man that God counted man's sin to him, and so identified with God because he was God that his mercy and grace was able to flow towards mankind. Jesus is the true, greater, and final Moses. So this is how we wrap up. How then do we respond to Jesus' death? Well, the New Testament makes it very clear, but so does the Old Testament, as we're about to see. New Testament, Acts 3.19. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. How many of you felt refreshed immediately after confessing your sins? Waves, rivers, tides of grace and mercy. Isaiah 30, verse 15. This is what the, the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. I like that. In quietness and trust is your strength. But then he says to them, but you would have none of it. <laughs> That's the Israelites. Uh, Mark fifteen thirty-two. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. See, those people were mocking him. They were saying, if you really were God, you'd come down from there. They were unrepentant. They mocked and scorned. Repenting is not principally changing your mind. It's not, it, it obviously involves realizing the truth about Jesus, changing, changing your mind in that sense. But repentance is to hate sin and to turn from it. It's not just a feeling, it's an action. It's a new heart, it's a new orientation, it's a new direction. So it's made clear to us that we need to repent. But then how is it applied to us? We all know it's applied to us by faith. We can tell this all the way back in Leviticus 1. In the opening verses, we are introduced to the idea of a burnt offering. Verse 4 says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, this is the priest, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. So what we know from biblical history is that a person would go and lay their hand on the head of the burnt animal and then lean put their weight on that dead animal. And that's what faith is. Leaning and putting your weight on Jesus. It's a symbol of trusting. Of I can even imagine the person almost diving onto the sacrifice. Like, I have to flee, flee from my sin and fling myself upon Christ. That's what faith is. Drop whatever else you're carrying, right? Your broken relationships, hurt in the past, those kinds of things. Holding on to, to guilt and to shame and to, um, and to hatred. You've got to drop that. And you've got to heap yourself on Jesus. I think... Where I'd like to, to end here is in, in Numbers 21. Just turn me there. Okay. So from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. No surprise. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? What an accusation. 
God, you rescued us from our oppressors and your plan is to kill us. There is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. So there's no food and no water uh, because we hate the manna that you provided for us. We hate the fact that you struck the rock and water poured out. We're just going to forget about all that and bring accusations against you, God. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Yeah, and the, and the people came to Moses and said, no, the, by the way, you don't get false teachers reading that stuff either. That's not attractive. That's not how you get converts. That's how you get false converts. And then the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So they have to see all these people dying before they realize that they've sinned and that God's judgment is upon them. So Moses prayed for the people. That's what Jesus is doing right now in the heavenly places. He's interceding for us. And the Lord says to Moses, make a fiery pit and set, uh, sorry, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Anybody seen this in the New Testament? John 3.14, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus is the one to whom we have to look to in order to be healed. God's wrath, his judgment for our sin is upon us in fiery asps, death. And Romans 1, this is not just a past tense thing, right? I've heard people say to me, this is the age of mercy. So they think God's not judging the world. Romans 1 says that on account of all these things, the wrath of God is being poured out, is being poured out right now on all unrighteousness. So it's a present reality. But the Israelites saw their sin and repented and said, Moses, what shall we do? So God makes a way. God made a way in Jesus Christ. He's the final one who has been lifted up. So what is faith? It is looking to Jesus. It's not complicated. The gospel is simple. This is what God has done. Therefore, repent of your sin. Look upon Jesus and you will be saved. Be still and see the salvation of the, word, of the, of the Lord is the, was the words that come to us in, in the Old Testament. Be still and see the salvation of the Lord. So today, that is what we are celebrating. One simple thing. That one sacrifice was made once and for all. He's the true prophet, true priest, true king, true intercessor, greater Moses, greater David. Final, he's the last Adam. That's... What happened on the cross? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die for us. Jesus, your obedience and your willingness to die in our place is the reason that we draw a breath. So we thank you, Lord. We give you all the glory and the honor that you are are worthy of. We pray that you'll be lifted up and magnified in people's lives this weekend and in the age to come. Amen.